Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, and that's your time. I promise we will take good care of it. You're going to love today's episode. If you're new here, I hope you found a home for your listening pleasure. I hope you'll come back again and again, but I pray that you'll just listen all the way through this episode and uh, let us know what you think after you've done so. Today's entrepreneur, Aviv Shalgi, has several successful M&A, VC investment, and joint ventures under his belt, in addition to two successful startups prior to his current venture, Solar Simplified. He's been a mentor and advisor to many entrepreneurs, startups, investors, VCs, nonprofits, and is a captain in the Israeli Defense Force, or IDF, as many call it, the eyes in the sky. We'll talk a little bit about that as we get into today's episode of how he is simplifying solar and challenging the status quo. If you like what you hear in today's episode, I really hope that you will subscribe to the show and whatever podcast player you're using. That'll make sure that you do get our content twice weekly, which is how often we publish. And you can always check out more than 370 episodes of Founder Stories and Startup Advice over at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, well, as I just teased... We're going to talk today with Aviv Shalgi. He's a business development, corporate development professional, uh, hailing originally from Israel, living uh, in the Chicago area, and co-founding a company that we're going to learn a little bit more about today, Solar Simplified. Uh, I got to know Aviv recently because, well, he's been on more podcasts than I have, <laughs> <laughs> and he is, and he's championing the idea that simplicity can be a competitive advantage. We'll dig into that and more on today's Suncast, but first... Welcome, Aviv, to the show. Thanks, Nico. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, I've enjoyed actually getting to listen through the the countless appearances you've made outside of the <laughs> solar industry. I think that you are doing just a phenomenal job uh, as a brand advocate to the broader uh, world as an educator on on solar and helping bring awareness to our industry. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, H- happy to do that. You know, it's it's so important to share what we do in this industry with the world. Uh, most of us are very quiet. So it's, 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 I felt that it's kind of something that I can do on the side in addition to kind of my work on Solar Simplified. Well, Aviv, will you tell me a bit about how you found yourself a serial entrepreneur by any, any record, looking at and deciding that you wanted to get into the clean energy industry? Sure. So... I think it's it's kind of like a puzzle. There wasn't a monumental moment, you know, an aha moment that guided me here. But in my background, I've always been a tech guy. I studied electrical engineering in college, um, even though I never worked in the energy industry per se. But I did see and stumbled upon the energy industry throughout my life. Again, school, during my time in consulting, whether it was 
not so clean energy or solar energy projects. And the thing that got me to start Solar Simplified with my co-founders was actually that we were trying to think during the, the early days of the pandemic, early 2020, what can we do? Kind of what skill set do we have? What knowledge do we have that we can bring to whatever industry to help people save money? Early pandemic days, a lot of friends, a lot of family are you know being furloughed, losing their jobs. It's very, very hard for everybody. So is there a way for us to help folks save money? And after doing a little bit of research and also just randomly stumbling upon you know, solar developers of all sizes in you know, all of those random networking apps that started popping up in early COVID days, I started hearing a lot of complaints, a lot of challenges that developers were facing. And I thought, oh, hey, I can solve those problems while helping people save money. So kind of communicating or connecting regular everyday customers to these solar developers. You know, and our first product started in Community Solar, which I'm assuming most of most of our listeners know what it is. So Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. So Aviv, before you sort of came down the rabbit hole with us on uh, the solar coaster, as it were, what were you particularly focused on with your work, uh, the past two startups? Uh, how were you, in, in essence, cultivating a career prior to jumping into the solar industry? My previous two startups were in uh, very different industries. The first one was still back in Israel in the, the mobile advertising space when that started back, you know, 2010, 2012. And my second one was here in Chicago after I moved here in real estate. But kind of the underlying theme, which we're also using today in Solar Simplified, is how can you use, say, simple but sophisticated, either data analytics or machine learning tools in order to make problems go away because you can analyze data and figure out what works, what doesn't work, what interests people, things of that nature. That's something that I kind of learned throughout the first startup, again, in online advertising. We were basically building something like what, how Facebook is working today. It's, it's a profiler for anybody of the listeners who likes you know, CSI or any one of those uh, uh, law and order type of TV shows. You know, they basically profile people in order to figure out who the suspect is. We were doing the same thing, but for advertising to understand, is it really worth it to show you this product? Like, would this even be interesting for you? Is it interesting right now? Like maybe you should show it to you at another time on another platform in a different medium, something like that. And kind of the same thinking of understanding what the customer likes and would appreciate really helps you if you try to think of any type of industry, selling anything, marketing anything, even figuring out what you want to do. Yeah, you really get into that, uh, the idea of consumer behavior, behavioral economics, like how are they, how are decisions made? I'm curious from that perspective, uh, when you were thinking about coming in, sort of going into uh, solar, how did you go about uh, educating yourself on the industry? A lot of talking, a lot of, a lot of asking people questions, I would say, and then listening to what they have to say. Um, I think one of, the, one of the kind of biggest challenges I've seen during my entrepreneurship days as well as you know, helping other entrepreneurs who come to me uh, and asking questions or for advice, most of us think we know the answer upfront. Uh-huh. We don't. Uh-huh. You have we a don't. hypothesis, right? Yeah, yeah, we don't. Customer knows their problem. Sometimes even they don't know that they have a problem. But if you don't ask the customer really what they want, it's going to be very hard for you to sell something to them or to pitch something to them 
if you think you know better than they do. So a lot of phone calls, a lot of cold LinkedIn messages to random people in my network, out of my network, just like, what do you do? But by random, yeah. were you looking for people in the solar industry or for consumers? Like how, how did you, I'm actually really intrigued by yeah. how did you make the decision for where you as an entrepreneur were going to express your entrepreneurial desire for the next three to five to maybe 10, 10 years right. of your career? Right. So again, it was, uh, I have to admit, it was a little bit stumbling into it. Um, you know, the idea was to go and look for some way to help folks save money at scale. So not just my friends and family, but a lot more people. And then throughout, you know, just random conversations on, you know, all of those networking apps, I met, I believe, five or six different solar developers, utility scale, mid-scale CNI, and a couple of community solar folks. I started just listening. Again, the, 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 the whole point of entrepreneurship is listening. And they were all complaining about different types of challenges that they've been having in their industry because of whatever. This is how the industry is built. This is how their company is built. This is how they operate. Each person has different motivation. But I believe on the fourth or fifth or sixth call, I'm like, gosh, I'm pretty sure I heard this one already. So I kind of started going back and see, who did I speak with in this industry? Shot them a quick email. Let's talk again. And I just asked, hey, did we talk about this like a month or two ago? And you mentioned this to me, that this is a challenge for you. And then some folks said, yes, it's, it's definitely a challenge. We talked about this. Let's dive in. And other folks said, we didn't talk about this. But now that you raised that, you know, raised that question, yes, this is painful. Maybe not the number one pain or challenge, but it's, it's disturbing them. Was there one or two that you kept coming back to for challenges that you uncovered? Yeah, I think that it was like, if I have to kind of hone in on it, I would say the, the number one thing was kind of about the returns or cash flow, depending how you want to take a look at it. A lot of developers are frustrated that they have to pay for everything up front, especially when it comes to customer acquisition, whether it's PPA, um, whether it's you know CNI, whether it's community solar. Most companies who do marketing or sales or things like that are you know asking for payments up front. Some of them rightfully so, others not so much. But as a developer, you have to put up money up front. Sometimes you can get tax advantages out of it, but sometimes you can't. You have to go and find those customers way ahead of time. Some of them would churn. Some of those deals are going to blow up. But as a developer, you just shed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on something that might happen, might not happen. Maybe you're going to have to redo it. Like, why do you need to deal with that? And also spending money up front is something that doesn't exist in any other industry. I mean, my, my previous startup, as I mentioned, was in real estate. You never pay in real estate to a contractor the full amount up front. You always do it in milestones. You might pay a little bit up front for procurement purposes, which I'm sure all of the developers in the solar space do because they have to buy the panels and it takes time to you know, manufacture them and ship them, etc. That's okay. Why do they have to pay for customers or for offtake up front a year or two? Before the, the, before the power plant is even built. So that was problem number one, was a cash flow slash you know, returns type of problem. The second problem was more of, I would say, either an operational or an emotional problem. Why do I, let's say if I were a developer, why do I need to work with other companies that I can't know for a fact are going to deliver? So what would happen if I go to somebody in this industry 
a platform, you know, a cold calling uh, call center, uh, door to door, if we're talking about, you know, residential or brokers, if we're talking about CNI or things like that. I have to go and work with, give them months, give them my time, which is the one thing that we can't get back. Give them my time and really hope that they're going to deliver. Like, how is that even possible that, that you know, I have, I have to do that? Most of the time, it's also, you know, around exclusivity. So I would say those were kind of the, the two major problems. Really low returns. You have to put up a lot of money up front. And you can't really trust that taking the low returns and putting money up front are going to be, you know, going to work the magic, let's say. Yeah. And by exclusivity, you mean once like you've gotten this agreement and you can't turn around and sell it to someone else, even if they came with a better offer. Is that what you mean? Yes, but but in my view, the exclusivity was let's say with your channel, with your marketing partner. You know, you don't oh, okay, you don't sure. go to five platforms or ten different brokers. You might yeah. you might split the project to ten uh, you know bite size and give them to different brokers, but you're always on the hook if your partner didn't perform. That's a problem. Was there any particular question or line of questioning that you felt like really resulted in giving you good insight? I'm really curious how like. It seems to me uh, that you came to the decision uh, in a relatively short period of time, yeah. and you seem like a really curious person. You worked for Israeli Intel, so I'm hoping that I can yeah. glean some interviewing tactics here. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's it's just a lot about being genuinely curious. So some of the, some of the folks I spoke with were, I'll be honest, they were like ranting because they had a bad day and a deal that they had blew up or something bad happened. And I was just like, sure, I'm, I'm going to be your therapist for the next 30 minutes. And I'm just going to listen, not going to judge, not going to offer advice, just, just going to listen and maybe, you know, maybe help you out a little bit. On the flip side of that, I always tend to ask anybody that I meet, by the way, um, not just professionally, like, is there anything I can do to help? Um, can I connect you to somebody, share some piece of advice? Can I do anything that I can in order to help? Because I kind of believe in karma, um, you know, what goes around comes around. And so I believe, you know, you have to give a little bit back to the world. And, and some folks say, oh, you know, there's, there's nothing, nothing you can help with. But other folks sometimes, you know, grab the opportunity and say, well, maybe, you know, somebody who can help me solve a problem that happened today. And that's where you have to listen. Yeah, that's really cool. Part of the work that you did uh, in corporate development, business development was, you know, management consulting, a lot of work in the military, which we can talk about, is training specifically around mental models and tools for managing people and resources that I believe have to be extremely useful to you now as an entrepreneur. What do you believe are some of those tools that through your time in the military or your time uh, in management consulting, you currently employ? Yeah. You know, we talked about listening, which is super important, especially, you know, you mentioned the military. In, it, when you're doing intelligence, you can just go and boss people around. It's, it's not, you know, not going to work. People are too smart to be bossed around. You need to be able to motivate them so that they really care about what they do. And that also if they think of something that's against kind of the, the main thesis of, of whatever they're working on, that they're going to be encouraged enough to you know, stand up and say so. Just by the way, something that is super important for me with my employees as well. Like if you guys think I'm doing something wrong, just come up and tell me. I'm human. I can make mistakes. I don't think that I'm smarter than anybody else. I just might have a different perspective and we can talk about it, reach some sort of a conclusion. So the listening and standing up for yourself is definitely like the, the first two things I would say. The other part is you kind of have to be a little bit analytical. 
you have to be a little bit data-driven. You can't take things for face value. So data come, kind of comes in on one side, but also sometimes folks, especially if you're talking, if it's a B2C kind of consumer product, people don't necessarily know what they want. And, you know, there's the jobs example of if you would ask people if they wanted an iPhone, like nobody knew what mm-hmm. an iPhone was. Or, or, you know, the Ford example of people, you know, you would ask people back then what they wanted. They wanted a faster horse. They didn't want a car. So, so you have to kind of dig in a little bit, maybe like peel the onion, if you will, and say, oh, again, going to the therapist model, even though I'm not a therapist, like, so why do you feel that way? Why do you think this, like, why is this bothering you? How would you think that this could be resolved? Things like that. It's just ask a lot of questions, try to dig in to figure out what, what's the real motivation? What's the real incentive behind the scenes? So those are kind of the, I would say the top three or four main, I think, things that I'm coming up with that, that kind of help, help me as an entrepreneur and just, I think, just as a person in life. Well, I've spoken about some of the things that you've chosen to pursue in your career path. What career path did you not go down, but perhaps always thought you would? There's a few, um, but kind of the main one. So as a kid, I was really interested in space and astronomy, you know, space exploration and moon and Mars and things like that, um, which a lot of kids do. Um, but I wasn't interested in being an astronaut. I was kind of more interested in sending robots. Over. I'll still hear, like sleep in my bed, but I'll stay, let's say, you know, throw a robot or a spaceship or satellite or something like that over there. So that was kind of the goal. And that's why I also started electrical engineering in college, because I thought it's going to be, you know, the best path into kind of space industry. I miraculously, completely unrelated to my passion, you know, in middle school and high school, I, I served in the satellite unit in intelligence. So spent most of my time up working with satellites, um, which was also awesome and kind of pushed me into it. But probably at 22, 23, I figured that this is not the right path for me necessarily because I didn't want to spend, I didn't want to commit to moving away from Israel my entire lifetime. I wanted an experience to live abroad like I'm doing right now here in Chicago. But in, in the space industry, you have to commit. It's Italy or France or obviously NASA here in the United States. There aren't a lot of places and Israel is a very small country. We don't have a lot of budgets for space exploration, things of that nature. That's the, the journey, the, you know, the path not, t- not taken. Well, you know, one of the things I've observed about the path that you did take is actually a little bit counter to not only the advice I give here based on what I, was, what I share, but also the advice that came from a friend of mine, John Shermanis, in an episode that we published well over a year ago now. You know, I always ask what sort of career advice you can share or, or what takeaways from mentors have influenced you. And John and I have been talking a lot about how he pivoted from one industry to another. And he basically said, you know, if you're going to switch industries, make sure you only change one element of what you're doing. Like, don't be a sales guy going into operations and uh, a finance guy going into, you know, sales. You know, if you're going to switch from one industry to another, stick to your knitting about what you were doing in the previous industry. So it's an easy transition or easier. I don't see that arc for you. And yet you've been able to make it successful. What do you attribute that to? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely understand. And I would say giving advice to other people, I, I, it's, it's the easier path to make the leaps, you know, shorter to me. In incremental stages. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
you know, if you, if you switch function, not function and industry, or switch industry, but don't switch the function. It's definitely easier. The problem is, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier ago, time is the one thing that we can't get back. So to me, personally, and again, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm more risk-loving probably than the average Joe, even though all of my friends, including my investors, say that I'm one of the most risk-averse entrepreneurs that they ever met. In my view, if you already want to make a leap, if you understood that whatever you're doing is not working out, like, just do it. Like, take the jump, do the best that you can. Obviously, you have to prepare, you have to research, you have to do your homework. Like, it's not going to happen miraculously out of, you know, out of nowhere, but do the best you can in order to get the biggest jump that you can into where you want to go, because that's where you want to go. Like, you you don't want to spend time and wake up, you know, 10 years later saying, I was aiming to get to this place and I just blew off 10 years in order to get there. (laughs) So in my view, try to see how you can, how you can shorten the path a little bit. And, and, and if you'll allow me, I really like, I'm going to stick to the jobs example. I really like, there's a quote, and I'm probably going to butcher it from Steve Jobs, that he would always hire the laziest engineers to Apple because a lazy person would figure out the easiest and best way to do so, to make something work or to build something. It's the same thing. And I switched careers three times already. If you figured out a way, maybe it's really, really hard, but if you figured out a way to make that switch quicker, in my view, do it. I love that frame of mind as well. If you want it, if you want a job done, a lazy person will find the easiest way to do it. And ultimately, you know, that's efficiency at its core. <laughs> right. The safest and cleanest path from A to from A to B. I had a friend who in his twenties, probably very much like you, he was working at a hospital and he was getting paid like a couple hundred thousand dollars to do his job. And he was taking Thursdays and Fridays off. And his boss came and said, like, how are you taking all this time off? And he said, uh, because if I took Wednesday off too, you guys would probably <laughs> fire me. And he goes, he goes, what do you mean? But you're like, and he says, well, how are you getting all your work done? And he says, well, I get all my work done on Monday. I check it all on Tuesday. I dick around on Wednesday <laughs> and I take Thursday and Friday off. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And he was like one of the highest paid people in the, in the, in the place. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was so instructive for me. Uh, I learned a lot from him about focusing on the right few things. You also see it with, with parents of very young children who will somehow finish the job at, you know, or finish all their tasks. And it's the same amount of tasks as everybody else at 2 PM or 3 PM or 4 PM, because they have to go and take their child out of daycare or, you know, Take them so to, to soccer practice or something. When so all of the you know all of the single folks, myself included, when I was you know way back when, it's it, you know you you finish the same amount of work by five p.m. or six p.m. or seven p.m. the same exactly. day. Exactly. Yeah, you find another gear, another lever. To that end, you've founded uh, or co-founded or been employee one at three companies, maybe yep. more. What is for you uh, maybe not the one headache, but what for you are the common barriers to success or headaches that you feel like early in a, your venture you have to overcome? It's true both as an entrepreneur and also as, a, as, as an employee in a small company or a small startup. The number one thing, and we touched on this earlier, is to admit to yourself, like put the ego aside and admit to yourself that you don't know what the customer thinks. Like you don't know what the customer wants. You think that you know, but you have to check and you have to double check and triple check. And ask another customer, another customer. And 
gather a lot of data and make sure that the data is not biased or dirty or that you're not analyzing it the right way and maybe you're biasing the data. So it kind of goes back to, you have to put the ego aside. In, in, in my first startup, you know, I was kind of fresh out of, out of consulting. And consulting, at least in my view, you have to be, you know, you have to have a little bit of the facade because you're talking to CEOs, you're talking to board of directors, you're talking to owners of, you know, Fortune 1000 companies, um, you know, super high investors. They need to believe in you. Exactly. And, and it's okay because you do a lot of the research and a lot of the analysis before you even go to talk to them. So it's okay because you can back up what you're saying. In startups, especially in the early days, you have no data about anything. You have two customers at best, you know, and it's your mom and your neighbor. So you have to understand that you might not be the target customer, or even if you are, you might not be the average customer from the whatever, 100, 1,000, 10,000, et cetera, how many customers, you know, your business can support. So, so that's, I would say, kind of the first thing. The second thing is always think about the other person's motivation or incentives. It's, it's one of the things that helped me kind of succeed in my first startup, again, in the advertising space, was to just go and ask folks that I was trying to pitch to, but let's really dive in to what's going on over there. How are you incentivized? What do you care about? Let's say as the counterpart, as the person who's supposed to sign, let's say the agreement with me, what do you care about? And how is that different from what your company cares about, um, but really cares about? What's underlying, you know, after you peel that onion? Not what you say, because a lot of companies would say things for marketing purposes and branding purposes, but they're really motivated because of something, one specific thing. They want to get a place in the market. They want to get a specific market share. They want the technology to be known. They want something underlying. And then it's a lot easier to partner with them, sell to them, buy from them, like do something when you really know what they care about. It's really hard to negotiate yeah. with somebody if you don't know what they care about. That is, yeah, that's really good. And I have to believe that on some level, while you've learned, no doubt learned that or honed that skill through your startup experience, that your time in the Israeli Defense Forces was instructive as well. One of my best friends, I'll just mention that, one of my best friends in, in college went to the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, excuse me, went to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey when I was there for grad school. And and he was an interrogator Oof. in Abu Ghraib, the the, uh, the famous interrogation camp at um, or imprisonment in, in Iraq. And uh, I was fascinated uh, because, you know, after several drinks on a Saturday hill, he would start talking a little bit about kind of what his training looked like. And, and it was a lot of, uh, of psychology, a lot of really understanding uh, human behavior. He's probably a lot more skilled than I am. I, you know, I'm, I'm just like any other person. I'm still, still working on it, but at least I figured I've, I've been through, you know, phase one that, you know, they, they always say phase one is denial. So I'm past denial. I know nah, that yeah. I'll, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. So I'm just going and asking people. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Did you ever think, man, I wish I could just text Nico. I have a question for him. Hey, Nico, where is your favorite Thai restaurant in Durham? Hey, Nico, what are the flight prices to Mexico City right now? Hey, Nico, where are you going to be staying in New Orleans this year for North America Smart Energy Week? If any of those questions have occurred to you or some other thing that you'd like to chat with me about, why don't you text me at 310-634-1780? I'm running a little test 
to see if I can actually get you as a listener to respond. So there you go. That's my number, 310-634-1780. Shoot me a text message. I'd like to know if you're going to North America Smart Energy Week 2021 in New Orleans. I'm going to be there, so why don't you take this opportunity to text 310-634-1780 and let me know. Nico, I'm going. Or, Nico, you're crazy. Why in the heck would I be in New Orleans? We're still in a pandemic. Either way, I love you, and I hope to see you there, and I hope that you'll text me. That number, again, is right there in your podcast player description if you click on it. In the various conversations I've had with you, I'm always pleased to see how you are willing to push back on things that maybe I take as assumptions. Tell me something that's true for you that very few people might agree with you on, and especially around uh, how, how the solar industry works. Yeah, it's laughable. Or, or some people at least would very much disagree with me, which is fine. But in my view, like the solar industry and all of renewable industry in that sense, kind of need to get rid of the large off-takers, you know, or anchor tenants, if you want to call it that way. Because in my view, we all get, all of us as people are sharing this thing called electricity that's running on the grid. Maybe my grid is different from the California grid, but everybody is sharing the same electron. And I don't really see a reason. I understand why it came to be that way, because you know, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, you couldn't get financing as a developer or as an asset owner if you didn't have a creditworthy Fortune 500 company who agreed to buy every single electron that comes out of your power plant. I understand that. We're in 2021. Like We're way past that. Banks and lenders know how to finance these types of projects. They know how to model the revenues and the risk and cash flow and things like that. So why not share this with everybody else? And sharing this from a, you know, a mental psychological perspective of more people are supporting solar or more people are supporting green, but also from a financial standpoint, solar is dropping significantly in costs. All of us know that. There are multiple studies from the government, whether it's the state governments and the federal government, that shows that. Why can't we kind of share the wealth a little bit, share the savings with everybody? Why does it have to stay with, you know, again, the, the huge corporations? And nothing against them. The huge corporations got us to get to this point. Without them, we wouldn't have been here. But now that we're here and the industry evolved a little bit, it's not mature, but it's maturing. Why don't we share this with everybody? Why do I have to get, let's say, you know, a lot of community solar projects you know, around the country. You get a tenant, an anchor tenant, 40, 50, 60%, depending on the state. And then you add a little bit of residential on top of that. Why? And you're referring to the 40, 50% of the overall power sold to an anchor yes. tenant like an Amazon or a Facebook? Yes. Okay. Just want to make sure. I'll, I'll bring us back around to it if you don't come back around to it because you were in the real estate industry. So clearly like you understand the, the importance of an anchor tenant. Uh, I think it's a really interesting choice that you made for what very people feel people would agree with you on. I might disagree with you on it and this would sure. be fun for us to explore. Yeah. But for sure, proceed. Uh, 50% or more uh, is sold off to an anchor tenant. Right. In my view, it shouldn't. I think we definitely need to support businesses, need to support you know small commercial industrial off-takers for sure. But there's no reason for me as a person living in this country, paying taxes, and those taxes are obviously incentivizing for the better of all of us, some of, you know, pushing renewable to be faster and be deployed and built faster. There's no reason for me to subsidize the profits 
of any Fortune 1000 company. Ah, wow, that's interesting. There is a big reason, in my view, that if the cost of this energy goes down, all of us need to be sharing those savings, or as many people as possible you know, need to share those savings. Because those solar power plants or wind or any type of renewable, they're here for everybody's benefit you know, from an environmental standpoint. So why shouldn't it be for everybody from a financial standpoint? So I know of a few... I mean, there's a lot of of community solar developers in particular, and I think the in particular the the niche that you chose uh, is interesting, and it's one that you know is only now really evolving into a market in more than you know, three or four states. Right. Uh, but you look at David uh, from Sunshare has been on the show, and, and they've built quite a portfolio with very few, if any, I think, anchor tenants. Right, so he might agree with you. Every other community solar uh, developer and uh, and uh, even broker that I know of, uh, the the vast majority of the of the portfolio is large Fortune one hundred, Fortune five hundred corporates. Because it's easy. Well, okay, it's easy, but it also massively de-risks the project, which the financial community wants to see. So that we can, you know, back to your earlier point, the developer has to go bankroll a project. And get get interconnection and get all the uh, you know get all everything permitted before they have even the anchor tenant in some cases. Sure. So completely right. So the ability the ability to feel that the the likelihood of closing a deal doesn't rely on that developer who doesn't have the um, the access to market or the technology to manage you know thousands of subscriptions. It's easy, as you say, to go get that anchor tenant. But I, also JP Morgan, if they're gonna underwrite the deal or BlackRock, if they're going to underwrite the deal or, you know, uh, whoever, they're going to want to see that you've got a bankable off taker. How do you, how do you get around having a bankable off taker if you're not taking an anchor tenant? I mean, you're definitely right. Definitely right. And different players have different risk appetites and that's okay. Like that, that exists in every industry. In my view, um, first of all, we're kind of really skewed right now. Majority of players go completely for an off take, um, you know, not even outside of community solar, majority of, uh, not behind the meter, but in front of the meter projects are either sold to, again, big Fortune 1000 off-takers. Folks who can secure those go to, you know, smaller, but still very, very large CNI off-takers. The thing is, it's not just a, do I go mass market and get the risk or do I go, you know, Fortune 1000 and de-risk? We're talking about the revenue is affected too. If you're going to Fortune 1000, who has the power in the negotiations over this agreement? It's the big company. It's your off-taker who has, has the power. Consumers? I can't call. I'm in Chicago, so I have uh, Commonwealth Edison, ComEd. I can't call ComEd and tell them, I want to stay with you, but I want you guys to reduce my cost next month. You can't do that. It's not a cell phone company. And you know, some states in this country are deregulated, and you can get a supplier, for better and worse. But you know, in regulated States, you can't obviously do that. And if you don't want to go to a private supplier, you can't negotiate as, a, as an individual or as a small business owner. You can negotiate with anybody. This is the rate that you're getting this month, and that's it. So you're saying, I'm going to take a much lower revenue, but de-risk my project. That's fine. But that should be a conscious decision. It shouldn't come from laziness or from the easy way out. And I feel that as an industry, we got a little bit, and this is Again, my two cents looking from outside in, it looks like we kind of got sucked into it because we had to. And now just everybody got used to it. And so in my view, we should 
shake the industry a little bit and make sure that for developers, especially the small to mid-sized developers, not the huge ones that have portfolios of gigawatts over gigawatts, but the ones who are building two megawatt at a time, five megawatt at a time, 20 megawatt at a time, you know, small portfolios, but those add up. And there's a lot more of those types of developers than the big guys. We need to help support them. We need to help give them a solution. If they want to go and if they're persuaded like I am to go mass market, make more money, but also have a little bit higher risk, how to do that? And how to do that in a way that's efficient and is not as risky as, let's say, doing it by yourself and really praying that everything is going to work out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting and it sounds uh, as though Solar Simplified is positioning as an energy broker. Uh, so I'll, I'm going to ask a question that hopefully helps me understand what are you doing differently in the marketplace that gives advantage for those project developers who maybe don't want to take a 50% haircut on their retail price that they could otherwise charge, uh, or rather off of what the utility is charging a client just to go get that anchor, that anchor tenant, because that's ultimately what you're saying is, Hey, why would you give up 50% of your revenues on that portion of the deal that you sold to the anchor tenant when, you know, the utility would otherwise be charging twice that much? Why would you do that just to get the credibility of an anchor tenant? How do you propose doing it differently? Are you a platform? What is it that you're providing to these developers that help otherwise mitigate that risk? Or, in core, or increase the revenues. <laughs> yeah, so, so there's a few, a few sides, I would say, a few aspects to, to that question. First of all, yes, we are a platform, not a broker. I don't go knocking on anybody's doors. It's very, very tech-heavy, mainly focused on how do we connect these two sides? How do we connect them efficiently so that the developer doesn't have to put any money up front? We don't charge anything whatsoever. Secondly, get all of the customers in time for whenever COD happens and they start producing energy. Um, so they're not losing any revenues. And thirdly, how do we you know, aggregate this? I'm a little bit more affectionate to the word aggregator versus broker. How do we add a lot of people so that the group is less risky than the individual within the group? If somebody doesn't pay, let's say out of a thousand uh, customers who are connected to us, they're a drop in the bucket. It doesn't really move the needle, you know? The problem with, that, at least that I'm seeing and I'm hearing, is that if you have an anchor tenant who decides not to pay, sure, you can take them to court. The only person or the only people who are going to make money off of going to court are the attorneys. It's going to take you forever. And whether they can break the agreement without paying any penalties or whether they have to pay you some penalties, like getting somebody who controls 20% or 40% or 100% of your revenue, for the slight, to me personally, for the slight chance of them canceling, I'm terrified. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. If 100% of the revenue disappears in one day, that's crazy. I don't know how you deal with that as a business owner. But if small customers come and go, that's totally fine. Like that's something that you can easily manage. And, And that fits within what I would consider to be that aggregator model. And several folks are maybe approaching it from different ways. You know, you've got full uh, develop, but also aggregate clients uh, in the marketplace, like companies like Pivot. You've got companies like Arcadia that as a platform sort of fashion themselves as the the Comcast of community solar, you know, really giving tools to subscribers and de-risking that subscriber base. It sounds like you're more on that aggregator side. So are there ways that you're approaching the customer acquisition that are novel and unique? 
I think that the, obviously we, we can dive into the proprietary technology and things like that. But I think, again, in my view, I'm kind of utilizing that, you know, that, that, that background I had in advertising of how do you figure out who are the right customers who would want to sign up and would want to pay, oh, and would want to pay. So instead of, you know, and I, I don't know how other companies are doing this, but I'm not a fan of the spray and pray method. Let's show an ad to everybody who live in Chicago. Like, in my view, that doesn't work. I don't know how you can make decent returns when you're spending so much money on advertising and you're really hoping that enough people convert. In my view, super highly targeted, but also how do you figure out that these folks are going to pay? I mean, the entire industry or the majority of the industry, at least when you're looking at residential, small, really small commercial mom and pop shops, are relying on FICO scores. And I understand it. It's the easy way to solve a problem, but it doesn't really solve the problem. And, and I can give my personal you know, experience. When I moved to this country five years ago, I had a $1,000 credit limit on a Citibank credit card that I never used. I had a 780 12 months coming into this country just because I had credit that I never used or maybe I barely used it. It's crazy. Like, how is that indicative of me being able to, to pay or not pay for, you know, for my bills. I mean, obviously as a person, you know, me personally, I would pay for all of my bills. You know, everything I have is set on auto pay. And my point is like this credit score thing. And obviously, you know, the current administration is even talking about maybe forcing some changes because they understand that it's not a perfect model. It's a very good model, but it's not perfect. But if you think about energy specifically, and even more than that, about a savings product, you know, community solar specifically, who wouldn't want that? Like, what is really the risk of somebody not paying for their energy? Like, we're not talking about, it, it's not luxury items. It's a savings. They know that if they stop paying, they're going to lose the savings and they're going to have to pay more to the utility. It's literally a no-brainer for folks to sign up for this. So the way that you underwrite people and the way that you figure out how to even target them in advertising needs to be different, in my view. It sounds like you're leveraging the ad tech sort of analytics background that you've been able to hone and some of the AI and maybe ML technology that you've figured out specifically to target our likely community solar subscribers. Yep. I would say who's like, who's more likely to want to save money and then who's also more likely to care about green or at least not to be, not to be anti-green. And then how do we combine those together? Yeah. So in that, in that realm, you're, you're testing customer sentiment. First and foremost. Okay. Well, that actually brings up something that I wanted to ask you about, because I noticed perusing your website that you have a 2020 consumer perceptions report. How did you go about structuring that? I guess coming back to your focus on questions, but how did you go about structuring the research of this perceptions report? And then what are some of the takeaways that you gleaned? The team and I wanted to kind of say, you know, we got connected again when we started the company with developers. And obviously we're still trying to get in touch with more developers, even just to learn, not necessarily to pitch the product, but just to understand how they're looking at the market. What are we missing? What, what can do we see right now? Or what are we not seeing? But the consumer perception report was there more to see if we can get to a large number of customers, consumers, specifically residential. We haven't yet produced a similar survey for you know small business owners, but we're planning to. And the idea was, what are they really thinking about this industry? What are they thinking about solar? What do they know about solar? And really open it up to ge- very general questions, either open-ended questions 
you know, kind of sentiment questions, but try to frame it in a way that's good enough for us to know what you meant, but open enough for us to not give you the answer by asking the question. How do we not bias you? And I would say the one thing, the main thing, the main key takeaway that we learned was sentiment for solar in general, at least across you know the, the folks that we asked, super positive, super, super positive. The problem is nobody knows about anything in this industry that's not, okay, I'm going to install panels on my roof. Because I'm a renter, I can't install panels on my roof. Because I'm a business owner, I can install panels on my roof. Maybe I, I, I'm a homeowner, but the roof is too old. Like all of us in the industry know that the 80% of Americans, roughly, I believe it's 82%, something like that, percent of Americans can't, for any sort of reason, install panels on the roof. They don't own the roof. The roof is too old. There is no roof. Maybe it's a high rise, you know, things of that nature. So if they don't know that there is such a thing, it's called a solar farm or a solar power plant, somebody else installed it for you, but you're going to share you know, the benefits of that, of, of, of the energy that's being produced there. If they don't even know about this, how can, how can the industry as a whole, not just us as, a, as an individual company, how can we pitch this to people? How can we get them to support this effort if they don't even know that this exists? In my view, that was the key takeaway. And for us, it was very important because we're spending a lot more time, you know, writing about market education, answering folks who ask us questions and call us or email us or reporters or podcasts or any sort of thing like that. You know, is it the best use of all of our time, you know, in a dollar, in a value type of, uh, type of analysis? I have no idea. Probably not. Um, you know, money earned per minute of, of working on something that's not, not what you have to do, you know, as, as, as a person working for this company. But in my view, like it'll move the industry forward. And by moving the industry forward, it'll move me forward as well, like our company too. So in my view, it's better to, to kind of spend a lot of time on this in hope that as more people learn about this industry, solar in general and community solar in specific, the industry will move forward faster. It's not going to take us 20 years or 50 years to get to where we want to. It'll take us 10. So is your ideal, even with the consumer perception, which helps you think about subscribers and one side of your aggregation platform, is your target market consumers or how do you serve the developers? How are you thinking about simplifying that transaction for developers as well? Yeah. So our, our business model is slightly different from other companies. As I mentioned, we don't charge anything up front. Um, and it's not just that the money is not moving hands. The entire structure of how do we build this deal is a little bit different. And we're really trying to simplify it. You know, the, the, the KISS method, simple and stupid. How do you make sure this is really easy for a new developer to understand what we're doing, to understand how it's going to help them, to compare it apples to apples, maybe with their current vendor, or maybe, you know, if they're in community solar, maybe even compare it if they're not in community solar. Maybe they're in CNI or in utility scale. Should they come in? If we can simplify this down, which we're you know, working very hard to do, both from a legal perspective and business perspective, and you know, how do we educate them as developers about this, then it'll make all of our lives easier because they can make more money, potentially. Um, if they understand the industry better, they can make better decisions. Potentially, they can make more money. If they make more money, there's more competition because more developers want to make more money. So you get more developers in the market who are building more renewables. So we're winning on all fronts. Sure. So how do you do it? That's the secret sauce, my friend. I, w I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give out all of my secrets. 
I appreciate that. But what you said is, uh, I said, how do you trans- simplify the transaction for developers? And you said, if we can help them understand how we simplify it, I have lots of developers listening to Suncast, help us understand how you simplify it. Different business model that's a lot simpler, a lot less convoluted, both from a modeling perspective and also from an execution perspective. Taking over risk that doesn't exist right now in the market. But again, I'm coming from industries where partners share the risk. It's not all of the risk is on one side, but you're going to pay me to do my job. But I'm, I'm not a side to this. It's a partnership. It's not just I'm selling you an apple and you buy the apple and that's it. It's, sure. it's something that's yeah. much more of a longer term. But you're essentially guaranteeing offtake for a developer. Yeah, that's a part of it. Part of it. I mean, we're not, there are no PPAs in community solar. So we can't do that, obviously. But the, the, the idea is how do you figure out something that would remove some of the risk, not all of the risk, but some of the risk from their plate. So it's shared. You know, if, if you mentioned before, community solar residential in general is a lot riskier. If we can share that risk with the developer, they don't have to carry all of that problem. We also share the reward. You know, it's not like you pay, you know, the same amount that any other company would charge without taking the risk. You know, it's, it's a risk and reward, high risk, high reward. And it's too ambiguous. And I know, but... It's, it's, I know it's tricky and I apologize to all the developers who are listening. Happy to share that on a, on a little bit of a more private situation, how exactly we go about this, but it's all about the business and the legal and the financial front. How do you make this easy for everybody to do this? Got it. And where do you see opportunity for 2021, 2022? Where are your sites? I mean, we just started the company less than a year ago. So for me, it's all about growth. More solar farms, more consumers, more solar farms, more consumers. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle. On a platform, you can't have too much of one side and not enough on the other side. I mean, I guess I'm asking, where do you, where do you suppose you're going to have the most customers in, like from a regional perspective in the United States? Where do you see growth for community solar? So I would say for us as a company, you know, we started in the state of New York purely from an opportunistic standpoint. Those were the first solar farms, you know who signed up with us. And those were the folks, if you remember, that voiced their challenges and were ranting in my networking sessions at the beginning that brought even this idea. We're already in central New Jersey, but I believe, I mean, the industry, I would really hope that here in Illinois, how is it possible? In Illinois, you have so few community solar farms. Everybody's talking about, you know, New Mexico and Ohio, you know, the expansion in New Jersey and, uh, you know, the main blow up, that happened a couple of months ago and how would that figure itself out? And kind of how do we explain, you know, throughout the country, you know, not just on community solar specifically, but how do we figure out this notion? Every state calls it differently. Community solar, distributed generation, all sorts of methods to get the customer connected to the solar farm or to the renewable power plant, Um, kind of skipping, you know, everybody else who's in the middle. Do you feel like your business is going to be built more on subscribers, kind of what I was saying, like Arcadia, the Comcast model, or on supporting developers? That's a good question. Um, I don't necessarily know which one is going to be more important than the other. Again, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a cycle. But at the end of the day, the challenge that is being solved, in my view, is for the developer. They're, they are the ones who are seriously benefiting from this sort of a solution. Or at, least the, or at least that's how I'm looking at it and how I'm thinking about it. Consumer doesn't even realize. Consumer doesn't even realize. Consumer is just transfer buying, right? They're just transferring their habit from the utility to the, right, right. To the community. And they, and they don't provider. even know that they could save money. 
Some folks do, but majority of folks don't know they can shop around for other suppliers in deregulated markets. They don't know, they don't know that there's this thing called community solar where it's a pure savings product and they can sign up for each one of the companies and some companies easier, obviously the sign up is different. So, you know, the sign up flow is going to be easier or more difficult, but takes a few minutes and they can start saving money by literally not doing anything. Keep paying your bills and you're just saving money. So to consumers, in my view, this is a no-brainer. It's just about how do you educate them? How do you simplify the sign-up process and the day-to-day operations and marketing so that consumers you know, understand what they just bought into? Is there anything analogous to what uh, you and others are trying to accomplish in community solar that you've seen in other industries? Not necessarily, no. I'm afraid to tell you. It's, it's really, in my view, there aren't a lot of startups that I've seen, at least, where technically nobody pays you to do what you do. You know, sure, developers sharing some of their revenue with us, you know, they're paying us to do our job because it's not their job to go and find hundreds or thousands of customers, you know, as an offtake for their, for their solar farm. But it's interesting because if they would have gone the PPA route, utility scale or very large CNI, revenue would have been lower. So by going B2C versus kind of the traditional B2B model, revenue went up. And what we're basically doing is just sharing that revenue. A little bit of goes as a savings to the consumer or small business owner, whoever you know is the off-taker. A little bit goes to us for facilitating all of this madness. And a little bit of it stays with the developer's extra revenue. So there aren't a lot of ideas or a lot of markets in the world where nobody pays for something and everybody's making money. That's crazy. Yeah. Did you bootstrap this? No. It's actually the first startup that I've raised money for. I, ra- I raised... A decent, a decent seed round here in, from a bunch of Chicago angel millionaires and billionaires, some of which have energy backgrounds, but most of them made their money elsewhere, you know, finance and private equity and things of that nature. But you have to. This industry is so highly regulated. You want to make sure that you're 100%, or at least I want to, 100% perfect with everything that's There's that risk-averse there. entrepreneur yep. in you. <laughs> yep, yep. And, and listen, one of, my, one of my investors is a fintech, fintech guy. Amazing guy. Super, super sharp. Obviously, very, very successful. In his mind, like I should have been doing a billion different things in marketing. Hold your horses. I want to make sure that what we're doing is A, legal, B, compliant, and C, again, super dumbed down. And the customer can understand this because just throwing money at marketing, in my view, and that's maybe they call it the Midwestern model, maybe versus the, the, the Silicon Valley, California model. I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm a very safe entrepreneur. I want to be able to know that I can stop at any given point in time, obviously not right now in the beginning, but a year or two or three into it and say, I don't know, I can't raise another round or capital markets changed or something like that. I can stop and this is a viable business and everybody's happy. Customers are happy. Yeah. And it's not just about Generating growth, cash. Growth, yeah. growth, 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 bleeding a lot of money. And you really hope that the IPO is going to be there or somebody's going to buy you out because it, I don't know, that's, that's the risk aversion on my end. Sure. I guess one more question around the, the capital raise. How did you, as a seasoned uh, entrepreneur with a few exits, uh, how did you think about the kind of investor pool that you would seed your business with? So I'll be honest, it was very opportunistic. One of my co-founders uh, knows one of those investors. We haven't even started the round. 
you know, it was a little bit of, hey, this is the idea. This is the team. This is why we think it's going to be such a huge market. Because, you know, as, as you said before, like there aren't a lot of markets out there that have this anomaly where B2B can negotiate, B2C can't negotiate. You move from B2B model to B2C model, you, your revenue increase significantly. Um, that everybody can share that increase and make a little bit of money. Nobody's paying for the product. It doesn't really exist a lot. So it was very opportunistic. Met with those investors, had a bunch of conversations. We were able to persuade them that this is this could be a real thing. So I'm sorry, I can't give out a lot of a lot of capital raising. What I'm trying to ask or get at is whether you did a closed kind of a, a small investor pool seed round with those key investors that your co-founder knew, or if they, you found opportunistically had these key investors you were introduced to, and then did they share it around in the angel community? Kind of how, help others kind of understand whether there's some serendipity involved in all this, but some of it's strategic, some of it's you kind of fall into it. I'm just curious where you fall on that. No, it wasn't an angel syndicate of some sort, even though I know a few here in Chicago, just from my VC days. It's, it's, it was kind of a closed round, you know, three key investors who took the majority of the round from their private money, a few a few smaller kind of additions, other ones that I stumbled upon, or folks that my 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 uh, co-founder stumbled on, or the investors you know, wanted to bring a friend or bring a co-investor or something like that, but it's not a big group, you know, eight, if I'm not mistaken. So fairly small round, um, but it's it's definitely big enough to sustain us for the next couple of years. And more than that, the good thing, in my view, the good thing about angel investors who have deep pockets is if they like you, they save you as an entrepreneur a hell of a lot of time going to raise capital. Because if they like you and if they believe in the idea, oh, you need another million? You need another five? You need another 10? Sure, we'll close the round for you. But you need to get to know, like, it's, it's kind of like dating. It's not just a pitch check, you know? You have to get to know them. You have to ask them a lot of questions. You have to make sure that those are the right investors for you and for your company and that they really believe in you and the idea. Otherwise, bad investors are going to make you suffer really badly. And there's been so many different you know, blog posts from seasoned entrepreneurs who unfortunately chose the wrong investor and you know, clo- ended up closing their businesses just because you know, it could be so harmful and so, so time-wasting. Thanks for sharing that. That's actually really helpful and insightful uh, and more than I anticipated that we'd be able to get into around, <laughs> around, around fundraising. It always amazes me today how the numbers are scaling up. Seed nowadays can be you know, $5 million, whereas that in the past was a, was a Series A. Series A is oh, yeah. 15 to 20. Series B is, I just talked to someone yesterday who Series B was uh, 60 million. 50, 60, yep. Uh, it's, it's mind-blowing. Like I remember- yep. Uh, I worked, I worked for a company that had gone through like a series Q <laughs> and, and, and it raises some total of about a hundred million. Right. So. Yeah. You do see, you do see series G and H and I every, every now and then it's, it's yes. The numbers have definitely gone up. You know, when I was investing back in 2015, 2016 in Israel. And also after I moved here, when I, mean, I was investing from the university of Chicago's VC fund rounds were you know, seed was a million, maybe a million and a half. And like since 2017, 18 until today, it's completely exploded, which is a very good thing for entrepreneurs, obviously. But 
it's it's also challenging. It's it's challenging because it's so easy to get money nowadays. If you have a decent idea, not even an amazing idea, and this is generally for all entrepreneurs, not specifically solar, that in my view, it kind of hurts the industry a little bit, uh, the entrepreneurial startup industry, because there's not as much due diligence as they used to have in the past. And in my view, due diligence is important. I want to hear from my investors why my idea sucks, why this would fail, because it, it, it puts things in front of me. Maybe I wasn't thinking about, or maybe I wasn't seeing as clearly. And if you have that discussion, you know, and it's a constructive discussion, then, okay, this is a hurdle that I know how to pass. Versus if I don't even know about it, just because somebody threw $5 million at me or $2 million at me, like you're going to stumble as an entrepreneur just because you can't see everything. Again, we're all people, maybe excluding, you know, Bezos and Gates and Musk and folks like that who are incredible entrepreneurs who can foresee, you know, challenges that nobody else could. Majority of us, we're ordinary people. You know, there's so much that you can do and there's so much that you can see. And that's why you need to bring in a lot of people to help you. And I think that's where a lot of uh, early or young entrepreneurs uh, get, they, they misunderstand the point of raising money. In some cases, it's not even that you need the capital. It's the access, and this is why Silicon Valley is what it is, but it's the access to the network of the network and the knowledge of the investor pool can help you scale so much more rapidly. And there's a price to pay for that. There's a price to pay for that. If you, in some way, because of knowledge can short the short, short circuit, the require the need to wait ten years uh, and get it and get and sort of accomplish that scale in two. Uh, that's the value of bringing on the right investors. And to your point earlier, the wrong investor can tank an otherwise uh, an otherwise potentially viable deal. Right. Quick question: right. If I were to see you on a TED stage, what would you be talking about? So we touched on this a little bit earlier. I think. I think it's super, super interesting, first of all, for me to talk about it, but also something that's not talked about a lot is how to peel that onion, how to figure out what motivates people and how, what, to, what incentivizes folks. I'll give you an example, not, for, not from our industry. I mean, this is a, a fairly known story in like the, the, the management consulting, you know, McKinsey, Bain, BCG, the whatever, top five, top 10 uh, um, consulting companies in the world. If, if I'm not mistaken, it's roughly in like the mid-90s. The revenue as a whole of the airline industry, um, and I might be butchering it, but bear with me, in Southeast Asia declined significantly. And they brought a lot of consulting companies to try to figure out what the hell is going on. I'm going to shorten the story down for, you know, for purposes of time. They ended up figuring out that one company brought, I believe it was a CFO or CRO or CSO or somebody on the, on the business side whose incentive, monetary incentive in his contract was on volume and not on sales. So if he's getting his bonus based on the number of agreements that he gets signed, well, the margin can now drop significantly and the price can drop significantly. Problem is this tanked the, the, industry, the entire industry in that local market, I think for like eight years. It's crazy. And it took a lot of companies, a lot of time to figure this out because nobody would tell you, you know, upfront, hey, I tanked the industry for the last 10 years. Like Nobody would admit this, but it's all about motivation and incentives. If you understand really what motivates people, money, mentally, things of that nature, it's a lot easier to figure out, is it relevant to do business with them? Maybe it's not, and that's okay. You're saving me time. I'm going to the next person. 
or might be more relevant? And if it does, what really, what is really interesting for you other than the money? Is it the risk? Is it cash flow? Is it, you know, is it something with your investors? Is it, what is it? I don't know. Is it the color of the box? Uh, the experience? Something is more important than others. If I would know what it is, it's easier for me to reciprocate and tell you, okay, you take this, I'll take that. Whereas if I don't know, it, it, it's very hard to work with people if you don't know what kind of what motivates them. I think that's what I talk about in TED, whenever that day comes. My guess is that you, like me, are a reader. I believe that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. I'd love to know if there's any particular book or, or maybe several books that you've gifted the most or that have influenced your leadership style the most and why. The four-hour work week. Easy. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I, read, I read that probably three times and I'm reading it again, not because I want to work less, but because I want to think more efficiently. And if I'm able to think more efficiently, then I'm also able to work more efficiently. And I'm also able to help you know, my team and my employees to be more efficient. And if you're more efficient, you're usually, usually also more successful. If you're more successful, you're going home or, well, these days you're working from home, but you're finishing your workday and you're happier because you're satisfied. You feel you know, empowered and you feel like you've done something good for yourself and for the company today. And that's always obviously helpful for your mental health and things like that, which is super important, you know, especially these days when everybody's locked in. Probably my number one book. Is there a habit or consistent practice that gives you an incredible amount of leverage in your life? It, it all goes back to those, you know, to the listening, just talking mm-hmm. to people, asking questions. It's, it's, and yeah. I'm, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit. It's fine. But it's things that I don't know, things that I don't know, I'm going to ask people. And obviously I'm going to start asking with the people who are closest to me in my network. But I feel the good thing about, you know, we talked about karma and helping other people out. I think the good thing about it is that you can also reach out to people way into the future. Maybe a lot of them might not help you, but some of them will remember that you helped them in the past and will kind of pay it back. And so to me, it's just about start, start from within. You know, can you ask your family about this? Maybe some of them are knowledgeable about something or, you know, or your friends or your neighbors or, you know, people in your close community, you know, somebody like that. You can't. Okay. Now, for me, I'm also asking my investors and I'm asking my employees, former employees or former, you know, uh, uh, co-founders that I had in my previous startups. Okay. Those folks can't tell me. Who can I reach out to? You know, I don't know. Alma Matter from school, um, you know, folks who worked in the same company as I did. You know, things of that nature, ask them. And again, come from a genuine place, um, or at least that's how I'm trying to do it. Come from a genuine place that you really want to learn something or you're really interested in what they have to say and not just, hey, I want to shove this product down your throat because that usually doesn't work unless you're a sales shark and that's amazing, but most of us aren't. So to me, it's just really helpful because I, I learn about things that I didn't know about this industry. I learn about things that I didn't know about other industries that might be relevant or maybe they're not relevant and might be relevant for me five years down the road. If there are folks in the community that really want to get engaged with you, they want to learn more about what you're about, where do you like to be found? How can folks find you? So, you know, my, my, my email's open. It's published online, um, aviv at solarsimplified.com. Anybody who wants to reach out. People who are interested, whether they're in the industry, developers and partners and things like that, and people who are not, totally open. If it's not related to solar, my LinkedIn is uh, uh, Aviv Shalgi. As far as I know, I'm the only one on LinkedIn with that name. (laughs) Um, And I'm happy to provide you with the link if you can put that in the description too. 
Yeah, um, we'll definitely have has it. My personal, has my personal email on it. People are more than free to ask questions, reach out, uh, and I'm, I'm going to do the best I can to help. Yeah. Well, how can we, the Suncast audience, help? I mean, providing feedback. If, if, you, if you are within the industry or you care about the industry, you know, check out our website. Tell me what's wrong. If you're a customer um, and you think that this is sort of a product that will be interesting for you, start the sign-up flow. I'll never, we don't sign up anybody who's not within our territory. So if somebody here in Chicago tries to sign up, we're going to thank them for their details, um, but we're not going to bother them right now because community solar in Illinois is frozen for the yeah. you know, short, short term, at least foreseeable future. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get the governor. We're working on the governor, getting the governor to change his mind. Go online, sign up. If you're a developer, reach out. Happy to share what we do in more specifics and you know, if it works out great, if it doesn't work out, I learn something new. Maybe they learn something new. And we're all friends in this industry. Well, Aviv, here's your Nostradamus moment. Let's end today's chat, as we always do, with the bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I hope I'm wrong, but I feel generally about our, our about the, the financial well-being of our, of our economy that capital markets are going to dry up at some point. And in my view, especially, you know, in the utility scale, solar and utility scale, renewable in general, it's going to impede, you know, or hurt returns significantly. Because if you, if, if it costs you more money to, or if it costs you higher interest to borrow money, you have to make more money. And since I, in my view, the returns are fairly low, the larger you get with renewables, Unless you get a huge subsidy from the federal government, which currently I haven't heard of, but we're all hoping for. It seems to me like once the economy bounces back from this pandemic, interest rates goes, go up. This industry is going to be forcefully moved from you know super large utility scale corporate PPAs to smaller CNI, smaller CNI, residential, aggregators, things of that nature. And unfortunately, because I think all of us have room in this industry, but unfortunately, I think it'll, if, if folks wouldn't think about this scenario, whatever it's going to happen, because it will happen at some point, we can't have zero interest rates forever. If companies won't prepare for this, our industry could suffer a, a pretty major blow. So my hope is that all of us will be prepared so that the blow wouldn't be as hard and we'll be able to keep speeding and keep building more and more renewables and affect more and more lives, even when that happens. Ending on a very pessimistic note. That's sad. This was a great conversation. Well, on a, on a high note, if you're, curious, <laughs> if you're curious about how to avoid getting caught in that death spiral, perhaps you'd want to reach out to today's guest, Aviv Shalgi, the co-founder and CEO of Solar Simplified, uh, with whom we've all enjoyed the better part of uh, an hour, maybe a little more by now, learning more about how solar can in fact be simplified and some of the ways that we're overcomplicating it perhaps. Aviv, I agree with you. I really enjoyed this conversation and I don't see that as a pessimistic note at all, rather <laughs> uh, a siren call to those who uh, perhaps are overcomplicating the business. Thank you so much for having me, Nico. It was a real pleasure. All right, Solar Warriors, that's a wrap on this conversation and I really enjoyed the chance to get to know Aviv, to learn more. 
about not just how he transitioned into this industry, as many of you are thinking about doing or have already done, how he raised capital, uh, how he thinks about the consumer sentiment that leads to the decisions that we and our customers are making that are growing this industry, the clean energy revolution you and I are all a part of. Hey, if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with the social media links, how to find Aviv on LinkedIn, the book recommendations that for our work week is within your grasp, and so much more over in the show notes on our blog at www.mysuncast.com. Hey, since you're going to be hopping online anyway, I would love to ask you to share this episode with a friend or your hairdresser or your baker, the local candlestick maker. I really don't care. I just want to know that you're taking action to help educate the market like we are. And I thank you for listening all the way through another episode of Suncast. I also want to encourage you to check out our next episode on Tuesday. We do this Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I want to thank our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about our sponsors and how you could partner if that's something you're interested in with the thousands of solar warriors in the Suncast tribe by going to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.